Welcome back to 10 Blocks, the podcast of City Journal. This is Seth Barron, your host for today. I'm an associate editor at City Journal. My guest today is Nicole Gelinas, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor to City Journal. Nicole, thanks for joining us today. Good afternoon, Seth. I hope you're you're doing well under semi-lockdown. Uh, I'm I'm holding up. I'm holding up as best as I can. Let me just uh, advise our listeners that we are doing this uh, remotely. Nicole and I are each in separate locations. Uh, yes. So, Nicole, here we are in uh, the first week of New York City under some basically under a kind of lockdown or quarantine. Bars and restaurants are closed. People are advised to work from home. Uh, many businesses are closed. What is the impact of all of this? And this is happening nationwide now and globally. What is going to be the impact of all of this on key New York City institutions and you know, fiscally? What are we looking at? Well, I don't mean to sound too negative, but I want people to be aware of the reality of the magnitude of this, which I'm sure many people are already aware. But New York City has, and, and you know, Paris, San Francisco, the the rest of the world really, have never really experienced a total shutdown of huge parts of the economy. I mean, if you think back to 9-11, People wanted to go out to bars and restaurants. They wanted to see plays. So nothing except for lower Manhattan and they, they, they expanded the opening zone every week or so. The city was open and business continued as usual. Same thing after 2008. I mean, we, we actually recovered quite well from 2008 because we had some things in our favor. We were the center of finance. The financial industry recovered very quickly because of federal stimulus that was pushed through the financial system. And in the rest of the country, when a lot of people stopped going to restaurants, stopped uh, you know, getting their hair done, and all kinds of service industries uh, suffered a big decline because people were worried about not being able to pay their mortgage, New York didn't really have as much of that because we had global tourism. So China... Uh, for example, uh, Latin America, a lot of emerging market economies didn't see the crisis that we saw. They came here, they spent their money. So we never saw that that drop off in the retail and restaurant industry. And this is very, very different. I mean, to think about shutting down the retail, much of the retail industry, the restaurant industry, uh, all of entertainment, I mean, all of museums, Broadway, off-Broadway, you know, indefinitely, but we're probably looking at at least a month. This is just an enormous hit, not only to the psychology of all of us, but also just to the the city and state tax uh, uh, situation, the job situation for people out of work, and also something like the MTA. I mean, the MTA can't last more than a few weeks with taking in a fraction of the fare box revenue. Well, let's 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 walk through this step by step because you just offered us an enormous uh, encapsulation of a global crisis. So, just locally, it's funny because well, I, I don't know how funny it is, but usually a recession or a recessionary period is driven by a decline in demand. But this is weird because here it's the supply that's being cut off. Presumably, people still have the demand to go to Broadway shows and to the gym, 
and out to eat, but they can't. But then I guess this will ultimately, um, you know, cause huge disruptions in the way people live. So talk about the tax revenue. How how is how does New York City function normally regarding uh, you know fiscally in terms the, the tax money it takes in and how is this going to impact that? Yeah, and I think you're right about it's like the supply that has been cut off, not demand. Although over time, people in higher earning, you know, work from home industries are going to suffer income losses as well. I mean, you, you have massive turmoil on Wall Street. It would not be surprising for us to see layoffs on Wall Street and the legal industry and so forth, just like we see in any recession. But yeah, so the the issue of uh, tax revenues for, let's take the city to start with. So if you look at, if you look at the 2008 crisis, the city lost about $3 billion in major tax revenues, basically overnight, you know, the tax revenues fell from like, Thirty-eight and a half billion dollars a year to like thirty-five and a half, and it took three years to recover. So even though we did better than the rest of the country, we certainly weren't doing very well. And we had a sort of de facto wage freeze, and that Bloomberg didn't give out new new raises to people. Uh, you know, job losses, obviously. But if we were to see that level of tax decline today. It would be well more than five billion dollars for the federal for, for the city's budget, and if we saw potentially higher than that, you could be looking at you know a very significant hit, you know, well over seven, even ten billion dollar hit to the city budget. Uh, so in terms of what that means, of course, De Blasio spends too much money, and you know we don't start off from this in a very good situation. But you don't just want like mass scale layoffs of public employees, like we saw in the seventies and eighties, that hamper the recovery. And so I do think cities are going to need immediate infusion of federal aid, not really to make them whole, but just to stem the crisis. I mean, if you think about a city basically not taking in any sales tax from restaurants, not taking in any much sales tax in retail stores. Income tax is going to be down. Payroll taxes for the MTA is going to be down. So these are significant revenue hits, and we just don't really know how long they'll go on. Well, um, the city under Mayor de Blasio, I mean, Mayor de Blasio, as we've both talked and written about, has been very lucky in that he's He's had increasing revenue over the last six or seven years. Um, so he's always been able to increase the budget. Um, so the budget's gone up like, I don't know, $20 billion a year. I mean, $20 billion since he um, came into office. Yeah. Um, now, can the city run deficits the way that the federal government does, or is that off the table? No, the city really can't run an operating deficit. There are immediate things it can do in a crisis, which are not wise, but I guess in some cases they're better than the alternative. I mean, they've got a reserve of $4 billion for future health care benefits that they're supposed to pay as people retire from the city workforce over the coming decade. So they could spend that now, but that means they have less money for later. Uh, things like 
um, sus- uh, suspending payments to the pension fund. I mean, in an extreme situation, they could do those things. The MTA could do those things, but they're not really very beneficial in the long term. So you were talking about the MTA. Uh, I, I read that ridership is off maybe a third or a half. I think it's higher now. They didn't. The last number I saw was from Friday when the MTA said it was down by close to 40% on Friday. But if you think about the big change in street traffic from Friday to today, I think when they release the week's numbers, uh, they won't be uh, very good. So what does that mean? I mean, to what extent does the MTA actually depend on the fare box? I mean, we always hear people saying that the MTA could just make everything free <laughs> because the trains run anyway. So do they really need the money that people use? I mean, that people spend to buy Metro cards? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, if you take a typical month, like the, the month of March, which the MTA estimated before this crisis happened, they were going to take in $750 million in fare and total revenue and then another $861 in taxes and subsidies. So if you were to say the fair revenues are going to be cut by 20%, the MTA and then the tax revenues could fall down potentially by the same. Looking at their total expenses for the month, which are a billion and a half dollars, if none of this had happened, they would have ended the month with a, a cash surplus of $100 million, which you would think is good, but they need that money to smooth out other deficits in other months during the year. But if they saw a 20% drop, which is very conservative, they'd be looking at a quarter of a billion dollar uh, deficit just for the month. And if they saw a 40% revenue loss, which is certainly not out of the picture, they'd be looking at a three quarters of a billion dollar deficit just for one month. So they can't really survive two months of that. I mean, if this goes into like late April, they're really going to be in dire streets. I mean, yes, there's some things they can do, like again, suspend payment to the pension fund, draw down on a letter of credit that they have, which is borrowing. I mean, it would not that would not be a good idea in any other circumstance. Uh, but they can't just sort of run service and not have passengers for for very long at all. So what what is the upshot here? I mean, is the I mean the city also has I mean the MTA the city employees I mean the city and the MTA have their own payrolls to meet. Um, are they going to have to lay people off? And is is that actually tenable politically? I think we really are going to need substantial federal operating aid. I mean, I'm not one to go around suggesting that most of the time. I think the problems that the city brought upon itself after 2008 uh, should have really fixed most of those problems itself. But I think this is a different circumstance. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, if you thought about like laying off or really furloughing under the contract, you know, thousands of uh, MTA workers that just kind of makes the immediate crisis worse because you don't want to like start up a recovery with train service that's running, you know, significantly before we were running uh, the crisis because we just don't have enough money. Hmm. So uh, what is the, 
what are some of the possible, I mean, you were talking about government, federal intervention. I mean, could the state step in and assist the city or is the state also going to be in a bad position? Yeah. I mean, EJ McMahon, our colleague could certainly, you know, talk in more details on the state picture and has written some things, but I think the state is basically in the same picture as the city uh, looking at massive revenue drops. So not in a lot of, uh, position to to be giving out new money and remember like after 9-11 and after 2008 we dealt with these crises in part by raising taxes but I think a lot of businesses and people will need substantial tax relief I mean we should be cutting the state sales tax cutting the city's commercial rent tax like increasing taxes on people when they're really suffering to come back is probably uh, not a very good idea do you, so let me ask you a question, if you don't mind. Sure. So talking about leadership in terms of we have a governor, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, we have a mayor, Bill de Blasio. Do you think that either uh, one has stood out as doing a, a good job, a bad job? You know, who's taking the lead here in terms of like hmm. the always fight between the, the state and the city over who's in charge of, of the city? I haven't been very impressed with de Blasio. Um, I mean, he can kind of put up a good show. And when you listen to him, he sounds like he's really engaged. But then it really seems like he's not he's not getting it. Um, I mean, a week or more than a week ago now, he he was talking about how the the St. Patrick's Day parade was going to go ahead as planned, you know, come hell or high water. But even, you know, at that point, it was clear that that was a bad idea. And then it, it was canceled, you know, ahead of time. But it, it sort of felt as though um, somebody else was p- putting the squeeze on him. And then last week, he was saying that the schools, he couldn't close the schools because so many families depend on the schools for um, free meals and, you know, other services. And, you know, this, this advocate uh, for the hungry told me that during the summer, uh, only 15% of kids who get school free lunch during the year go and get it during the summer, which indicates that, you know, the, the free meals program is very important. And I'm not, not going to say that it's not an essential program. But at the same time, I think to a certain degree, it may be more of a convenience than a dire necessity <laughs> that, you know, if 15, if only 15% of the kids are going to get the free meal during the summer, presumably the other 85% are, are managing and not, you know, starving to death over the summer. Um, so, you know, keeping schools open just for the sake of offering the free meals it didn't seem like a very far-sighted way to look at it. Um, I felt that De Blasio could have you know, rocked that there was there must be a workaround, and in fact there was. They figured out well they can still make the meals as like grab and go, which is what they're doing. But clearly uh, Cuomo, it seemed, was going to close the schools, so De Blasio jumped ahead of it. Then De Blasio was dragging his feet on shutting bars and restaurants, even though everyone was saying it was a good idea. And other places have done it, places that are less uh, 
badly hit than New York City with the virus. Um, and de Blasio was just kind of made, sort of making light of the situation. Reporters were asking him about it, and he was saying, well, just make sure if you're going to your favorite bar, just to, you know, socially distance there. But this was right before St. Patrick's Day, and he was planning on keeping the, the bars open, even though it was clear that St. Patrick's Day becomes... It, you know, with tons of mobs of drunk people, obviously they're not going to practice social distancing. It, it would just be a very bad scene. Um, Governor Cuomo, I think, has done a reasonable job of, of, of you know, acknowledging the gravity of the situation. Um, but he, too, has, uh, you know, he's, he's playing it up a little bit. Um, you know, he closed the schools, he's closing the bars and restaurants. But at the same time, he's um, sort of pointing fingers at the federal government. And, you know, there's, there's kind of a blame game going on. So I'm not going to, but look, I'm not going to say that the president is doing a phenomenal job of leading us either. This is a very strange situation. And I'm not sure anyone really knows what to do. Uh, what's, uh, what's your take, Nicole, on where things are going in the future. I mean, you, you've written a lot about Rikers Island um, and the plan to close Rikers Island, which in the last year or two became this, all of a sudden this became a, a major imperative, uh, first from you know social justice and anti-incarceration people, and then it just took on a life of its own. And now there's this huge plan to close Rikers Island and build borough-based jails. But you were indicating that the fiscal problems that are sure to arise from the virus are going to put the kibosh on this plan. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, building four borough jails is supposed to cost $9 billion. So it's an enormous percentage of the city's capital plan. I mean, if you if you think about the other big priorities that we have, like rebuilding the Brooklyn Queens Expressway in some form so that it doesn't fall down. Um, are we, if we're looking out a year from now, are we going to be able to spend this enormous amount of money on building four borough jails? Now, of course, the jails are, uh, they're susceptible to virus, like any institutional setting. And so probably smaller cells with fewer people uh, congregated together would would do something to stop the spread of the virus if it does start to spread on Rikers Island. And actually, we had a 56-year-old corrections officer die of the virus yesterday. He was the first active city, uh, well, hopefully the only active city employee to die of the virus. But you could build better jails on Rikers Island and likely do it more cheaply. I mean, it's not going to cost like, you know, like a billion dollars, but you could probably get the cost to down to like six, seven billion dollars with the the cheaper cost of construction in a less populated environment and build jails that are less susceptible to infection. You know, it's not the location that's important. It's the design of the jail. So you're you're a student of city life and um, transit, bicycling, uh, you know, construction, building. How is this going to change, or if it will change, how is this going to affect 
the way New York City functions going forward. I mean, maybe it won't. Maybe this will all blow over. But it seems, like you said, this is just so, this is absolutely unprecedented that the whole world is coming to a standstill um, in an effort to, as they say, flatten the curve of the rate of infection. So all of this, these social distancing measures, what, what do you think this is going to do? What is it going to be like to live in New York City going forward? Well, I think, you know, talking long term, and you can tell me what you think too, but I think the good news is that this has kind of shown that people like to be together. I mean, a lot of people are working from home. I know that we're lucky to be able to work from home rather than have to uh, brave the, the subways and do uh, you know difficult public-facing work. But it's people don't really like working from home. I mean, maybe it's fun to do once a week to shorten your commute or work sometimes shorter days or so forth and do a little bit of work at home at night. But to sort of sit at home all by yourself in your house, I mean, for days on end is not all that fun. And so I think people will actually want to get back to being in more groups of people in the workplace and also things like groups of people in a restaurant or seeing a Broadway play. I mean, I think it's it's true that people kind of miss this. I don't know, you do you agree or disagree? Yeah, I agree. I agree and it's, you know, it's 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 a it's it's frightening times to walk down the street and everybody's trying to hustle to avoid each other and all of this this fear. And and you know, I, I mean, honestly, I have to say you and I and maybe other people in our position are, are very, very lucky to be able to work from home. Uh, I mean, when I think about the, the, the tens of thousands of people in New York City who, you know, whose livelihood depends on interpersonal, you know, interactions like barbers, manicurists, uh, waiters, people who work in the theater, um, you know, ushers at the movie theater. I mean, gym, people who work at gyms. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of, of people who are going to be so negatively affected by this. It's just, it's really horrifying to think about. And these are people who don't make necessarily a lot of money, probably don't have a lot in savings, and they're going to face immediate, they're going to suffer immediately. Um, it's It's a really uh terror it's terrifying um yeah it is and i think that that's also where the federal aid comes in i mean i wouldn't call it stimulus because we're not really stimulating anything it's just things like unemployment benefits i mean the top unemployment benefit in new york state is 500 dollars a week so that's not that doesn't replace people's full income that they lose i think the federal government should probably top up the state unemployment insurance so it replaces most of people's lost income, you know, do something for freelance workers in all different types of industries who might get paid by the day, you know, kind of compare their income from last March to this March and have the federal government offer a a sort of subsidy of that for a little while. Just, you know, not only because you want to help them, which of course you do, but also because it avoids a bigger financial crisis. Like if you start to see people default on their credit card debt and auto loans and all that stuff, you know, you can make it worse uh, if you don't act quickly and decisively. And think about, say, a restaurant has to shut down for a few weeks or a month and, or, and can't pay its rent. 
Well, then you have the landlord, the building owner, right? Who may have who has mortgages, has a mortgage to meet. Um, say he goes into default, and then banks. I mean, it, it really can spiral. Um, so I, you know, I, I suppose this really could turn into a um, a depression. I mean, it's a it's a horrifying thought. But uh, I mean, you know, look. I mean, let's hope that careful federal intervention and maybe warming weather, if, if that, you know, helps, could uh, get us out of this quickly and we can try to return to normal and patch things up. But, you know, it's a very frightening time. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess if you, if you say no one knows what's going to happen, I guess there's a chance that things work out better than we think, that this weakens as it passes through the population. As You know, we're obviously not doctors, but that happens sometimes where we get a vaccine up much more quickly than the government saying, you know, 12 to 18 months. Uh, but I mean, there's certainly hope that those, those things could happen. Indeed. Indeed. Um, well, Nicole, uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Likewise. Uh, and you know, to all of our listeners, this has been 10 blocks, the podcast of city journal. You can check us out on Twitter at hashtag 10blocks. If you like the show, please leave positive reviews on iTunes. And um, we will be back next week with another episode of 10blocks. Thank you very much, Nicole. Thank you, Seth. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.